Ezekiel 43, verse 13. And these are the measurements of the altar by cubits, the cubit being a cubit and a handbreadth. The base shall be a cubit, and the width a cubit, and its border on its edge around one span, and this shall be the height of the base of the altar. From the base on the ground to the lower ledge shall be two cubits, and the width one cubit, and from the lower ledge to the larger ledge shall be four cubits, and the width one cubit. The altar hearth shall be four cubits, and from the altar hearth shall extend upwards four horns. Now the altar hearth shall be twelve cubits long by twelve cubits wide, square on its four sides. The ledge shall be fourteen cubits long by fourteen wide in its four sides. The border around it shall be half a cubit, and its base shall be a cubit round about, and its steps shall face the east. Got that? This is the altar of sacrifice. This is not the altar of incense. Don't confuse it with the table of the Lord we talked about last week that is in the holy place before the Holy of Holies. The only piece of furniture on the internal aspect of the sanctuary. This now is on the outside. And it's the only piece of furniture out here that Ezekiel describes. It's the altar of sacrifice. It's a big altar. And the Lord uses two words here to describe this altar. And you wouldn't see it because in the New American Standard Bible it just says altar hearth twice. Well, it's two different words. In the King James it says altar. Other translations may say something else or just say altar of sacrifice. But it's two different words. There in verse 15, if you'll note this, the altar hearth shall be four cubits. Okay, that says the altar hearth. Now, from the altar hearth shall extend upward four horns. The phrase altar hearth, the first word is harel. Harel. It literally is translated mount of God. That's where the song came from that we sang a little bit ago. The mount of God is that altar. It's the base of the altar going up. Okay? The mount of God. The next word there, the second time altar hearth is used in verse 15, it's not harel, it's ariel. Ariel. Some of you Hebrew students, scholars, may know that Ariel also means Lion of God, but in this case, it means Hearth of God, like a fireplace hearth. So you have the Mount of God, which is the base, and the surface on top, where the fire would be for sacrifice, is the Hearth of God. Mount of God, Hearth of God, and that's, by the way, Hearth of God is how Isaiah used the word Ariel in a prophecy of judgment of all of Jerusalem. He called Jerusalem the Hearth of God. Isaiah 29, verse 1, Woe, O Ariel, Ariel, the city where David once camped. Add year to year, observe your feasts on schedule. I will bring distress to Ariel, and she shall be a city of lamenting and mourning, and she will be like an Ariel to me. And that was Isaiah prophesying, the Lord saying, about a hundred years in advance, Jerusalem's going to burn like a hearth. Jerusalem is my Ariel, my hearth, and it will burn, the city will burn. But in the case here of Ezekiel, as he's describing the altar of sacrifice, he uses those two words, and it's incredibly significant, the mount of God and the hearth of God. The base being the mount, the altar itself on top, the burning area being the hearth. Do you see the picture? The mount of God and the hearth of God. It speaks of the cross on Mount Moriah. 
The Mount of God being Mount Moriah or Mount Calvary. The cross being the hearth, being the place of the burning wrath of God, being that place of sacrifice. And so even in the description of the millennial altar of sacrifice, the Lord is reaching back and pointing to the cross on the Mount of God, that hearth of burning. Where the heart of God burned against the sin of the world, against the person of Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 tells us, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Which means His sacrifice was sufficient for every man, woman, child ever to walk the face of the earth. Enough of the perfect blood of Jesus was spilled that if everybody came to repentance, if everybody accepted Jesus, everybody would be saved. As we've talked about before, it's universal invitation. It's not universal salvation. Because everybody who would be saved must receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Or the salvation just sits out there like an unopened gift. The hearth on the Mount of God, the altar of sacrifice, has always been a type of the cross. Reaching back to the very first altar there before the tabernacle. And then the altar of Solomon that was there in the first temple. And the altar of Zerubbabel there at the second temple. And then broadened and enlarged tremendously by Herod there in the second temple. The altar always points to the cross. Now I take this moment to remind you all, to reiterate, that the future sacrifices in the kingdom are not redemptive. They are retrospective. They are not there to redeem. The the sacrifices, as we talked about last week, the previous sacrifices in Israel never redeemed a person. They were always, uh, you know, just holding off. They were a covering until the true sacrifice came. And so during the millennial kingdom, when those sacrifices are reinitiated, restarted, they are now commemorative, looking back, whereas the sacrifices previously looked forward. Now, in comparison to previous temples, there are a couple of, oh, you could call them alterations. Okay, a couple of changes here that you want to note, and the first one is the size of the altar. Back in Second Chronicles 4, verse 1, Solomon made a bronze altar 20 cubits in length and 20 cubits in width and 10 cubits in height. Now, this altar is far more broken down. As you will see if you go to biblioprince.com, you can check out how there's the outer rim that is a cubit high and then it goes another four cubits up and then another three from there and you can see how, it, how it's designed. It's very specific in Ezekiel. Not so much in Second Chronicles. We just know the height and the width all the way around it. Which again, for Solomon's bronze altar, 20 by 20 by 10 cubits. That is 30 by 30 feet square, 15 feet high. That was Solomon's altar for the first temple. Herod's altar in the late second temple era was 50 by 50 cubits by 15 cubits high or 75 by 75 feet square, 22 and a half feet in the air. It was a big altar. Herod did things big. You know, Along with his personality, his construction was always big. Josephus gives us that measurement for Herod's altar. The millennial altar here, if we're we're to take it all into consideration, and this is, I'm going to give this to you roughly, don't don't put it down as doctrine, but it, it gives us an idea here. Approximately 16 by 16 by 11 cubits, if I'm reading it correctly. And if we're using the longer cubit, 
The cubit and the hand breadth being either 21 inches or 24 inches, I think probably 24. It's 32 by 32 feet square, 22 feet high. So it's close in some ways, in, in its uh, area around, it's close to Solomon's. In its height, it's a little closer to Herod's altar. So the millennial altar, again, a bit larger than Solomon's, a bit smaller than Herod's. But once on the altar, the priest would go up to the altar. He always went up from the south side, went up the south side on a ramp to the top of the altar, and then from the altar, they would always face to the west with their back to the east when they offered sacrifices. Why? Because the pagans always faced east to the sun and to the rising of the sun gods when they offered their sacrifices. So the Jewish priests faced the opposite direction to offer sacrifices uh, to the west. But here's where we see the biggest difference between Ezekiel's description, God's altar in the millennial kingdom, and previous altars. And it's not the size of the altar, it is secondly the steps of the altar. The steps of the altar, the steps to the altar. Now again, there's a difference just in the direction because previous altars, they always came to the south side. On this altar, you know, they come up the east side. So as you walk into the temple complex, the first thing you would see there before the sanctuary, you would see this altar with steps going directly up right in front of you. They're coming up, coming in from the east. Now that's a difference. There's not really an explanation for that, but the steps are unique. The steps are unique. If you go back further, and go back to the bronze altar of the tabernacle, the very first altar that was constructed, and it was low enough for the priest to stand at ground level and offer the sacrifices on it. So it wasn't a high altar like, like the others got a little bit higher as we, we go along. In the first and the second temples, again it was Solomon's 15 feet and then Herod's 22 feet respectively in height. But they always came up the altar from the south side on a ramp, never on steps. Steps were not used. Well, why is that? Well, it's very significant. The pagans used steep steps to high altars on grandiose platforms, elevating the priests and elevating the ritual and what was taking place and drawing attention to the one upon that place. They would go up these high steps. The Lord said to His people Israel in Exodus chapter 20, verse 26, You shall not go up by steps to My altar. And then He says, So that your nakedness will not be exposed on it. What is that about? Men in ancient times mostly wore robes. And usually, nothing underneath. Get the picture? Let's just call it overexposure. Okay? God says, I don't want you going up those steps. And all of a sudden, nobody wants to see that. Nobody wants to, you know... Have that vision as you're going up the steps. So no steps for my altar. It was really as, as simple as that. So I was laughing about that today and, and thinking about the fact that religion does the exact same thing. See, that's religion. Think about this. Religion creates high steps. Your works, what you do, your self-righteousness. But the higher up the steps you go, the more self-exposed you are the more the reality of your sin can be seen by all people. 
the more you dupe yourself into actually thinking you're such a righteous guy, such a a righteous gal. And the truth is, your sin is exposed for all to see. And that's what happens. That's why you see pastors of great churches, of of great stature, of of great quote-unquote success by the world standards, falling off these altars. Why you see them going down. It's why anytime someone, even as a Christian, tries to um, grab hold of some great success and begins to really believe it's their own power, their own righteousness, their own goodness, it's self-exposure. And it's a dangerous thing. And it's religion. God says, I'm not into religion. That's not what this altar is about. This altar is about looking forward to something I'm going to do. I am preparing your hearts and your minds for what is to come. The altar in the millennial kingdom, it is for looking back to what He did in Jesus Christ. Even the temple altars, larger than that of the tabernacle, used ramps. So you might be sitting there wondering, well then why does God have steps going up to the altar in the millennial temple? And I'll give you a very simple reason. Because Jesus will be there. And when Jesus is there, your attention is not on anybody else. When Jesus is there before you, He's the one that you will see. He's the one that that we will pay attention to. He's the only one that we're going to want to look at. When our eyes are fixed on Him, everything else ceases to be at issue, including religious self-pride. Because we're looking at Him. Because we're amazed with Him. Jesus said in John 6.40, This is the will of My Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him, will have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Note that God doesn't say, Behold yourself and how hard you've been working to get yourself saved. He says, Behold the Son. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, Hebrews 12.2 tells us. As long as we're looking at Him, there's not going to be a problem. We don't have to worry about exposure or overexposure. No, instead, Titus 2.13 says, We are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Behold Jesus. He is the one who alters you. He is the one who changes hearts. He is the one who saves. So behold Him. Verse 18, And He said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord God, These are the statutes for the altar on the day it is built, to offer burnt offerings on it and to sprinkle blood on it. You shall give to the Levitical priests who are from the offspring of Zadok, who draw near to me to minister to me, declares the Lord, a young bull for a sin offering. You shall take some of its blood and put it on its four horns and on the four corners of the ledge and on the border round about, and thus you shall cleanse it and make atonement for it. What is atonement, Bible students? Covering. We're going to cover this thing. We're going to make atonement. Make sure it is covered. He says in verse 21, You shall also take the bull for the sin offering, and it shall be burned in the appointed place of the house outside the sanctuary. On the second day, you shall offer a male goat without blemish for a sin offering, and they shall cleanse the altar as they cleansed it with the bull. When you have finished cleansing it, you shall present a young bull without blemish and a ram without blemish from the flock. You shall present them before the Lord, and the priest shall throw salt on them, and they shall offer them up as a burnt offering to the Lord. For seven days you shall prepare daily a goat for a sin offering. Also a young bull and a ram from the flock without blemish shall be prepared. For seven days they shall make atonement for the altar and purify it, so they shall consecrate it. 
When they have completed the days, it shall be that on the eighth day and onward, the priest shall offer your burnt offerings on the altar and your peace offerings, and I will accept you, declares the Lord God. The consecration of this millennial altar. Last week I mentioned Ezekiel's early omission of the peace offering. It was the one of the five offerings he didn't mention. Here he does. So here all of a sudden it shows up in verse 27. The peace offering will be offered. So what we can take away from that is all five original offerings that you can study in Leviticus 1-5. through All five of the original offerings will be in play in the millennial kingdom. All five will be going on. Does anyone have any question about whether or not there's going to be blood sacrifice in the kingdom? I mean, you see why maybe some people who have a problem with the whole idea of blood sacrifice have to back it up and say, well, I guess this isn't about the kingdom. Because there can't be blood sacrifice in the kingdom. To which we talked about last week, why not? Why? Well, because because Jesus redeemed us. Exactly. Jesus redeemed Israel, too. wasn't their sacrifice that did it. Their sacrifices look forward. These sacrifices look back, reflect back, commemorate what He did. Just keep that in mind. But the peace offering. I love the peace offering. I think it's my favorite one of the offerings. If I was a Jew, that would be the one I would enjoy the most because the peace offering is the one you get to share with the Lord. I imagine it was a favorite among the Israelites. Leviticus 7.15 says, As for the flesh of the sacrifice of his thanksgiving peace offerings, it shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until morning. The whole idea behind the peace offering is he brings his offering, God takes the fat portions, and the Israelite gets the lean portions, and you share it right then. You eat it right then. So you would go with the family, perhaps, up to temple, with your thank offering, your peace offering, offered unto the Lord, the fat portions would be offered up, the meat portions would be given back to you, and then you and the fam would go have a picnic. A picnic of peace. That's the kind of the idea. A holy barbecue. And a reminder that God is the God of all peace. It's the peace offering. And in the same way that the Israelites shared the peace offering with the Lord, the Lord says, I'm sharing my peace with you. That this is a time of peace between us. That because of sacrifice, there has, be, there has been made peace between us. I think of Aaron's benediction. Again, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. Number six. Romans 15.33 Now the God of peace be with you all. In John 14.27 Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. And I love how He adds, Not as the world gives do I give to you. In other words, if I'm giving you my peace, you know it's for good. You know I will not take it back. You know it's not a lie. It is absolutely true. Here is my peace. He says, do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Now, I don't know about you, maybe gentlemen, if you're this way, but good planning always gives me a sense of peace. As long as the plans are made ahead of time, I don't stress, I don't worry about things. When things are all up in the air and I don't have any idea what's going on, that's when I start to freak out. And the Lord has not left everything up in the air. He is such an amazing planner. 572 years before the first coming of Jesus, the Lord here gives Ezekiel these plans for the temple and the altar and the reinstated sacrificial system that would come later after the second coming of Jesus. See how far ahead he's planning? 
2,572 years if Jesus comes tonight. Or plus or minus there. And God sticks to the plan. He makes His plan. He declares His plan. He sticks to His plan. He does not vary from His plan. And we have every word of His plan in Scripture before us. Why wouldn't we want to know it when He's given it to us? God also keeps His covenants. Know this, that even the salt bears witness to the fact that God is a covenant keeper. Maybe you caught that when we went by it back there in verse 24. You shall throw salt on them. Why is that? Was does the Lord just like salted steak? Is that what's up with the salt? Throw salt on it. Well, it's a very specific Levitical instruction when it came to sacrifice. The salt of the covenant. If you're keeping track, we've talked about the size and the steps of the altar. You might note this: the salt of the covenant. The salt of the covenant. And this completely lines up with Levitical law. Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13 talks about the salt of covenant. Listen to this. Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt, so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. God says, every offering that's offered on the altar hearth before me, you pour salt on that, and you let that go up. It is a sign of my covenant. Salt conveys God's covenant. Why? That seems kind of weird, you know? Salt the steak. (laughs) And it conveys covenant. How does that work? Well, you chemistry students should know this. Salt, sodium chloride, NaCl on the periodic table... (laughs) does not break down in fire. It doesn't. In fact, you want to put out a fire and you got nothing else to do, grab a bag of salt. It will put the fire out because salt doesn't break down. It doesn't burn. And the Lord shows us this beautiful thing. Pour salt on the sacrifice. The sacrifice burns up and the salt remains. What does that tell you? The covenant's still there. The covenant doesn't go away. The sacrifice which is only for atonement, only for covering for a time, can't do what the salt represents, and that's maintain God's covenant all the way until Jesus would come. The salt of the covenant. And there's a great connection here between salt and sacrifice. Jesus Himself taking the full heat of the sacrifice on Himself, and He did not break down. He never left the cross. He never said, I can't take it anymore. He went straight to the grave and even death couldn't hold him down. He still was the salt of the covenant. The salt of the earth, if you will, as he rose from the grave. The salt of the covenant. Jesus, by the way, knew his chemistry well. (laughs) He referred to this salt with an intense teaching for his followers. Perhaps you recall these words, Mark 9.49, he said, everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone will be salted with fire. Well, the salt doesn't break down. So even when the fires come, the salt doesn't break down. Disciples of Jesus, listen, when the tribulations and the trials and the difficulties and the pains hit in your life, understand, Jesus holds up in the heat. And if your life is hidden with Christ, then you will hold up in the heat because Jesus does. He doesn't break down. He doesn't burn away. He is not like chaff. He will hold you up when the fires come. 1 Peter 4.12 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you 
which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, and it could be 150 degrees, <laughs> to the degree that you share in the suffering of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so also at the revelation of His glory, you may re- rejoice with exultation. So the salt of the covenant. We'll continue on, chapter 44. Then he brought me back, he brought me back by the way of the outer gate of the sanctuary which faces the east, and it was shut. Now I need to pause here. Sunday I mentioned Suleiman the Magnificent who shut up the eastern gate with 15 foot thick bricks. However, though it was a great conclusion, <laughs> I may have been wrong. <laughs> It happens. I know it's a shock to you all, but it happens from time to time. Upon further study, as I read this, as I think about this, and yes, Suleiman shut up that gate, and yes, I absolutely believe, because the Bible tells us Jesus is returning through the eastern gate, not Suleiman's gate, but the eastern gate. I believe it's underground. As the Bible says, lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king may come in. But... That being said, the gate being referred to here in verse 1 of chapter 44, I don't think it's the east gate of the temple wall. I believe, if you note this, it's the east gate of the sanctuary. He brought me back by the way of the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces east, and it was shut. Now, I could be wrong about being wrong and thus be right. Either way, you're right. Either way, it's, yeah. Either way, it's coming in through the east. But I just wanted to be clear about that, that there is room for error here, and you need to study these things out and continue to go back to them. I, honestly, I, I hate that when I make a firm stand on something, in my, just for myself, I'm not even talking about in teaching, but for myself, if I come to Scripture and go, yes, that's what it means, and then I find out that perhaps that's not what it means, it drives me nuts. But just be clear in your study, and uh, we want to avoid being dogmatic about things that we haven't really seen or we don't know for sure. Maybe the outer gate on the wall, but probably the outer gate of the sanctuary itself. And so the man that is there with Ezekiel brought him back by way of the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces the east, and it was shut, the sanctuary door, if that is correct. It says in verse 2, The Lord said to me, This gate shall be shut, it shall not be opened in it, and no one shall enter by it. For the Lord God of Israel has entered by it, therefore it shall be shut. Now it goes on and says in verse 3, As for the prince, he shall sit in it as a prince to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the porch of the gate and shall go out by the same way. So now that's making sense. If this is the gate, the eastern gate on the eastern side of the sanctuary, that Jesus going in and out of the sanctuary, he's the only one that has the right to do that. And then others coming in and out of the temple complex could come in through the eastern gate on the, on the eastern wall Perhaps, or perhaps we're talking about that that other gate. Either way, we're talking about the prince now in verse 3. And the prince, I believe, is Jesus. Revelation 3, 7, Jesus who said of himself, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. And I personally do believe the prince being talked about here and in subsequent chapters is Jesus In His coming kingdom, the prince who comes and goes through the gate of the sanctuary. And I shared on Sunday that Jewish commentators often connect this prince with Messiah. They say, yeah, the prince must be Messiah. Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 refers to Messiah the prince. So the connection there seems clear to me. 
But there are those who question it. In fact, there are some really good Bible commentators and Bible teachers who say, no, this prince cannot be Jesus. Some say, well, is this prince also a priest? (laughs) Because Messiah obviously has the right, based on Hebrew Scripture, to carry out priestly privileges in the Millennial Kingdom. He's our great high priest, right? Psalm 110, verse 4, speaking of Messiah, the Lord has sworn and will not change His mind, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 13, He will bear the honor and sit and rule on His throne, thus He will be a priest on His throne. And the council of peace will be between the two offices. But again, some don't think the, the prince here is Messiah. Some teachers and scholars who I highly respect, and I had to struggle with this one, they say this can't be Jesus, this prince. I'm sticking to my guns on this one. And I'll explain why in a minute. But first I want you to notice something else. Number four, if you're just keeping some notes going through this, notice the servants, the servants of the sanctuary. The servants of the sanctuary, verse 4. He brought me by the way of the north gate to the front of the house, and I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, and I fell on my face. Which is what Ezekiel does every time he sees the glory of the Lord. And the Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well. See with your eyes, hear with your ears all that I say to you concerning all the statutes of the house of the Lord and concerning all its laws. And mark well the entrance of the house with all exits of the sanctuary. You shall say to the rebellious ones to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, enough of all your abominations, O house of Israel. When you brought in foreigners, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh, to be in my sanctuary to profane it, even my house, when you offered my food, the fat and the blood, for they made my covenant void, in addition to all your abominations. And you have not kept charge of my holy things yourselves, but you have set foreigners to keep charge of my sanctuary. Now I read that and I say, when did that ever happen? When in the annals of the history of Israel did they allow foreigners to come in and work the temple? I don't read it. Now we've been all the way through the Hebrew Scriptures and the history up to Ezekiel at this point. And there is not an instance where we have foreigners coming into the temple and working in the temple as though the Levites and the priests were just allowing them to do that. I see that and I say, I I, I don't know what he's talking about here. Some believe that non-Jewish foreigners actually were allowed to officiate in the temple courts and thus desecrated it. And I suppose it's possible. I suppose that the Lord just didn't include that But I think what's going on here, I think what the Lord is alluding to is when the Babylonians stormed Jerusalem and defiled the temple. That you allowed this to happen. You allowed foreigners to come into my temple, to come into my holy place, to to defile it and desecrate it. You allowed this. The Levites let it happen. When Babylon stormed Jerusalem. How did the Levites let it happen? Why blame the Levites? Because they didn't teach the Word. As we talked about, I think a couple weeks back, Ezekiel 13, verse 5, the Lord says, You have not gone up into the breaches, nor did you build the wall around the house of Israel to stand in the battle on the day of the Lord. And the wall he's talking about is the wall of truth. It's the wall of doctrine. 
It's the wall of Scripture. You didn't build it up so that the people had a firm wall to stand behind and be secure within. Ezekiel 22.30, you said, I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it. But I found no one. And so, the beautiful temple was handed over to babbling foreigners, uncircumcised in flesh, and obviously uncircumcised in heart. I think about the Sermon on the Mount. Which, by the way, you know, the Sermon on the Mount is, is uh, Jesus' constitution for the coming kingdom. It's the constitution. It is not something we are even capable of keeping at this point. We as citizens of that coming kingdom are called to attempt to live by the Sermon on the Mount. Not as a law, but as a lifestyle. But I believe the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is unrolling the constitution of the kingdom age. And in that beautiful constitution, he makes this statement, Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now understand, dogs and swine are not just people you don't like. You can't just apply that verse to someone who's bugging you. You know? Parents, to your kids, when they're out of control, you swine. You dogs, back to your rooms, you know. Talking to friends who have offended you or upset you. No, it is very specific. You don't give what is holy to dogs. You don't throw your pearls before swine. What is the holy thing he's talking about? What are the pearls? You want to know? You want to know how to trample God's grace and tear up God's truth? Give the holy things away to people who don't understand them. Why would we do that? Who does that? Well, the church is doing it quite a bit today. Give foreigners charge of the sanctuary. Huh? Let the attitudes of culture replace the doctrines of Scripture. The church, in softening doctrine to fit the attitudes and the, and the mores of our culture right now, the church is watering down the truth and allowing the foreigner into the sanctuary. Allowing the non-believer, allowing the person uncircumcised of heart to come in and change things. Because they're at it. That's, that's the way the world is out there. And we need to, we need to mold. We need to change like culture. It's the compromise of the eternal Word of God for the transient values of a society. And it's exactly why Jerusalem fell. And it's exactly why the Levites are being called out by God for allowing the babbling foreigners to come into the temple and take it over. Who's going to stand in the breach? Who among us in the church is going to stand in the wall, rebuild the wall of truth and say, no, it is the Word of God on which we stand. On this sword I will fall. I stand by the Word of truth. That, I believe, was the ultimate lapse of the Levites. They let the Word of God go. Verse 9, thus says the Lord God, no foreigner uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh, of all the foreigners who are among the sons of Israel shall enter my sanctuary. But the Levites who went far from me when Israel went astray, who went astray from me after their idols, shall bear the punishment of their iniquity, yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary. Well, there's a left turn. (laughs) They will have oversight at the gates of the house. And ministering in the house, and they shall slaughter the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people, and they shall stand before them to minister to them. 
Because they ministered to them before their idols and became a stumbling block of iniquity to the house of Israel. Therefore I have sworn against them, declares the Lord, the Lord God, that they shall bear the punishment for their iniquity. And they shall not come near to me to serve as a priest to me, nor come near to any of my holy things, to the things that are most holy, but they will bear their shame and their abominations which they have committed. Yet... I will appoint them to keep charge of the house and all its service and all that shall be done in it. That sounds almost schizophrenic. On the one hand, I am done with you, Levites. I am standing against you. I am put out with you. You will not serve in my house. And then on the other hand, yet, they're going to serve in my house. What's going on here? Is the Lord against the Levites or will He have them serve in the house? This is a contrast of the immediate punishment and the future promise. The immediate punishment being you're cast out, guys. I am against you, Levites, for what you have done and for what you have allowed to come upon my people Israel. I'm against you. That's the immediate. But the future is yet. I think it's the best word in that passage used twice. Yet. Yet. Yet is a word of grace, isn't it? Rick, you are a sinful sod and you should be put out with the dogs and the swine. Yet. Because I love you and because of your faith in Jesus, I'm saving you. Yet. You did all this, yet you will still be servants in my house. Oh, the grace of God. Oh, the forgiveness and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Now there is a caveat here, and it's another aspect of what's going on. The Levites will have a limitation in temple service. The Levites that God is referring to here will only be able to serve in the temple, to minister in the temple, but they will not serve the Lord in the kingdom. They will not minister to the Lord, but they will serve in the temple. So who's going to minister to the Lord? Number five in your notes, the sons of Zadok. The sons of Zadok or Zadok. Look at verse 15. But the Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the sons of Israel went astray from me, shall come near to me, to minister to me. And they shall stand before me and offer me the fat and the blood, declares the Lord God. They shall enter my sanctuary. They shall come near to my table to minister to me and keep my charge. The sons of Zadok. Why the sons of Zadok? This is now the third time we've heard them mentioned by Ezekiel. A little background. In 2 Samuel 15, we see Zadok, who was a faithful servant of David's, a faithful priest in the reign of David. And during the insurrection of Absalom, when David fled the city because his son Absalom was trying to overtake the crown, Zadok fled with David. Zadok stayed stayed faithful to the king that God had put on the throne. We're told in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 32, that Zadok was the priest David called upon to anoint Solomon at the time when David's other son, Adonijah, was trying to seize the throne. David's an old man. He's about to die. And so he proclaims Solomon to be king, and he calls Zadok, and Zadok comes in and anoints Solomon to be king. What we see here is that Zadok is a picture of faithfulness and fidelity, of devotion and loyalty 
That's what Zadok represents. Now, will these be the actual sons of the lineage of Zadok? Well, reading this in its most literal sense, yes. Where are they? Well, God knows. And by the way, did you know the Levitical DNA is different? There have been studies that, that have been done. I have a whole book on this at home that talks about how those of the Levitical line of the priesthood have a different DNA than the rest of the world. Different in that they are all the same. You can, you can pick out a Cohen based on DNA. Their DNA is, is different than everybody else. Isn't that amazing? God knows where His priests are. He knows where the sons of Zadok, even to this day, where that lineage is. So absolutely it may be the actual sons of Zadok, but it also may be, I'll give you this, a representation of those who keep themselves from the idolatry of the nation. Those who are circumcised not only in flesh, but in heart. Those who have a Zadokite attitude. I want a Zadokite attitude. To be like the sons of Zadok. As Peter said in 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So that you may proclaim the, excellency, uh, the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And as we said last week, what the sons of Zadok understood and what we need to remember is the number one job of the royal priesthood, even before proclamation to the world, is devotion to the Lord. That we are first devoted to Him, and then to evangelism and bringing the Word of the Lord to the world. But if we are not first devoted to Him, how possibly can we bring His glory and the name of Jesus to the lost world? If we're devoted to the world, that's where we start to do things by culture rather than by Christ. So our devotion must be first to Him. And that's what we see in the sons of Zadok. Verse 17 is interesting. It shall be when they enter at the gates of the inner court, they shall be clothed with linen garments. And wool shall not be on them while they are ministering in the gates of the inner court and in the house. Linen turbans shall be on their heads and linen undergarments shall be on their loins and they shall not gird themselves with anything which makes them sweat. Love the practicality of the Word of God. You might note this number six if you're taking notes, the sweat band. The sweat band. In other words, no stinking in the sanctuary. None of those bodily odors getting out, no sweating in the presence of the Lord. Now you might say, wait a minute, Rick, that's kind of weird because God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. So what's the deal with the sweat? Why would the sweat bother the Lord if the Lord is spirit? Well, just remember, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 says, In Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In that millennial temple, during the millennial kingdom, Jesus is there as Son of God and Son of Man, resurrected in full bodily form, and stink would bother Jesus like anybody else. (laughs) It truly would. (laughs) But this is also the place where the glory dwells. This is the place of holiness. This is the place where worship is happens where prayer is offered. I I wasn't going to tell you this. I'll tell you this anyway. Why not? I was at a junior high retreat with my brother. We were both doing youth ministry at the time. This was years ago, and it was a Saturday night. We'd had a time of worship. And, and even for junior hires, I mean, they were in. 
You know, it was quiet, it was focused, and, and we were doing a, a feedback time with the kids, and they were sharing about what they loved about the Lord and what they thought about the Lord. And in that silence, this one poor, poor young guy just let it rip. <laughs> and I can tell you in that moment, all holiness was gone. <laughs> The glory departed the building. The rest of us wanted to exit as well because it was a tight little room and a little sweltering in there anyway. I did know who it was. He was sitting two people over and it was all I could do not to go, Oh man! What's the matter with you? Well... Where worship happens. <laughs> where prayer is offered. But listen, seriously. This is a temple, not a gym. It is not a place where sweat is supposed to be taking place. It is not a place of work. It's a place of rest. It's not a place of, of stress and strain. It's a place of peace. It's a house of prayer. And it reminds me that I don't come to the altar to work. I come to the altar for rest. To cease striving. And to know that He is God. Psalm 46.10 And when those tribulations or trials or tragedies come, when the heat is turned up and I'm covered with the salt of the covenant of Jesus Himself, don't sweat it. Don't sweat it. Just remember what you're going to be wearing in the coming kingdom. Revelation 19.8, it was given to her, the church, I believe, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And my friends, the saints don't sweat it. The saints don't stress about all the things going on in the world. Uh, Hayden and I, my son, uh, he ran over to the doctors with me today and we're riding back and talking. And I, I love those moments with Hayden. He was just sharing faith. And he said, Dad, if I didn't believe in Jesus, I don't know if I'd want to live in this world at all. And I said, Son, I'm right there with you. In fact, I said, Son, if I didn't believe in Jesus, you probably never would have been born because I don't think I would have lasted long enough. It is only faith in Jesus that takes me through the difficulties and the trials and the heat of this world. Don't sweat it.